Good morning. Take a seat this morning. My name is Janice Wood. I'm one of the pastors here. And as you heard uh, Jesse tell us, um, our other pastors are on their way home from the men's retreat and uh, or weekend or whatever we're uh, calling that, where apparently they have had a wonderful time. We're anxious to have them back in our midst, but I'm pleased to be able to share God's Word with you this morning. We're going to dive right in. If that's okay with you, we're going to be working out of the book of Galatians today. So if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, you may want to get to Galatians. I'm going to start in chapter 5 as our primary scripture. You can always follow along in the screens um, or use your devices, which is even faster if you want to do that. Are you ready? Galatians 5, verses 7 and 8, two short verses to kind of set the tone for our whole message today. This is Paul talking to the churches in Galatia. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. You were running a good race. Now, I don't know a whole lot about the Apostle Paul, but based on the, the books and the letters that he has written, which is a whole lot of the New Testament, I suspect that he is a bit of a sports nut. I'm just guessing. I am guessing that if Paul were alive today, he would have ESPN. I am guessing he would have NFL Sunday Ticket. I'd really like to have it, but it costs a lot of money. NFL Sunday Ticket would be, would be the best. I bet he would be watching the Olympics. Have you been watching the Olympics? I know, you know, there's been a few things that have, uh, you know, caused outrage and concern and all the rest, but, you know, what doesn't these days? Um, I, and to be fair, the race that he is talking about and the kind of sporting events that Paul talks about in his letters are really the precursor to the Olympics, if you care about history. That's really what he's talking about, they, except they were racing for a wreath rather than a medal, right? They, they, that was the, the crowning fame, was to stand on the box, I guess, and get a wreath. I am convinced that he loves sports. Listen to a few more scriptures. You're not going to see them, but just hear them. When he writes to Timothy, he says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. In 2 Timothy 2.5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. I'm also thinking Paul likes a good referee, right? 1 Corinthians 9.24-27, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? And then finally in Philippians, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I think that Paul was mesmerized by... Uh, physical feats of, of, of athletic uh, prowess, of the stamina involved, of what it meant to discipline your bodies and, and to submit to the kind of training that is necessary. And he relates that to what it means to follow Jesus. And, and to be fair, you know, in, in some sports, I, you know, I was watching the Olympics a little bit, just a little bit last night. I turned it on and it, it uh, showed me diving. I, I just went for the first highlight. Men's diving. That's amazing to me. I mean, first of all, that's, that's really high. And the other thing that intrigues me is, you know how in some sports you get a yell to, like, encourage the team or to d distract the other team and, and make a big fuss? And then in other sports, I guess you just have to be quiet, like, I don't know, golf and tennis and, and apparently diving. You have to be super quiet until because it doesn't take much to ruin your focus. It doesn't take much to throw off someone's game in those individual sports. It doesn't take much to cut in on your race and to throw you off. 
He says again in Galatians in the first chapter, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion. And then he says in 3.1, you foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? Paul is writing to churches in Galatia that he had planted in an earlier missionary uh, journey. He had gone to that area. He had uh, converted a lot of people. He had preached the gospel. People had surrendered their lives to Jesus. He had planted churches. And then he went away. And while he's away, he's hearing that the Galatians are starting to believe dumb stuff. They, they're starting to be confused, and they're, and they're losing traction in their race. And so he's writing to them and saying, guys, who's cutting in on you? Why are you letting yourself get distracted? You're losing the good race that you were set out to win. So the question I believe God wants us to consider this morning, I'm going to put it this way. What does it take to jade you? What does it take to make you jaded? As in, to make you dull, or apathetic, or cynical, in a way that makes you slow down in your race with Jesus, or just quit entirely. What does it take, what does the enemy use to get at you in order to, to make you jaded? How does he come at you? See, I believe the enemy, Satan, the devil, whatever you want to call him, it's all the same character, but some words carry more freight than others. I believe the enemy is coming at us like he's playing poker. You know, if you play poker, apparently you don't play the game, you play the players. And I believe the enemy is playing poker with us, and he's reading us, and he's reading our tell. What is our tell? What is it that we do that makes us vulnerable and he knows what's happening? Because the enemy doesn't come at us with all of the same ammunition. He changes it up. Given our particular disposition, given our circumstances in life, he will come at us. He will discourage us. He will throw us off our race. He will throw us off our game in different ways. So we're going to talk a little bit about those ways this morning. So what does it take to make you cynical enough to slow down or give up entirely on God or on the church? First of all, and I didn't number these, but you can if you want, if you're taking notes or bullet points, I don't really care. The first one, tragedy. Tragedy. I think that that is one of the primary ways that the enemy wants to come at us. Things that just take our breath away. Things that, that uproot our dreams and our lives and, and change the landscape in, in a split moment. Goodness, anybody who's been awake in Richmond, Kentucky over the past week knows the tragedy that has hit this uh, community with, with the loss of two wonderful people that actually had uh, a hand in the very beginning of Vineyard um, in that murder that went down earlier this week. It is a tragedy. There are people that will, we will be, we will be getting over this for days. And there will be some folks who are closer than others that are going to be thrown off during this time. Uh, years ago, uh, it's been about four years ago, my husband and I were out in California at the National Vineyard Conference that we have every other year where we get together with other pastors and leaders and, and just, um, it's just a wonderful time for us to be together and reassess where we are and, and to be encouraged. While we were out there, I was in a workshop. I'll never forget this call. I got a call from uh, one of my children that, um, that the daughter of some of our very good friends, the 30-some-year-old daughter of some of our very good friends in Oklahoma, where we had pastored previously, um, had been killed. 
She had driven her car off a road, hit a tree, it burst into flames, and she and an eight-year-old neighbor boy that was traveling with her were both instantly killed, we hope instantly. It was a horrific thing to think about. And in that tragedy, we, um, we were already in California. We had traveled out there on the motorcycle. We decided to come back through uh, Oklahoma and stop for that funeral. And all the way back, I, I kept imagining for that, that day or so that it took to get there, I just kept thinking what it was going to be like to see my friends after this event. Because tragedy shows up in your eyes. Did you know that? Tragedy shows up in your eyes. And and in our business of ministry, I have seen a lot of tragedy. And I've seen a lot of people. And and, and I've kind of categorized the way that I see people and and the way grief hits them. Because it takes us in a lot of different directions. Here's one way that it hits us. Sometimes people's eyes are vacant. After the death of somebody close to them, after a tragic loss, especially if it's unexpected, their eyes are just they're just vacant. It's like they're shell-shocked. They're in disbelief. They don't cry. They're just kind of wandering around a little bit. <clears throat> they're just not sure about the whole thing. Another, another look that I see sometimes is rage and anger. If there's somebody to blame, if there's a drunk driver to blame, if there's somebody who did something they shouldn't have done that caused this thing, then you generally see people kind of leaning into that early on because anger is a part of grief, to be sure. Sometimes you'll see people who are, are just devastated to the point that they are, they're dazed. It's a little different than the first one where they're not processing at all, but when they're, when they're dazed and they're so devastated that they really can't put one foot in front of the other, so people are usually leading them around and showing them where to sit and what to do next and how to get through the funeral pr- proceedings and all of that. Then sometimes I see people who are stoic. They see it, they get it, they're processing the pain. They know what's happening, but they're not crying for you. They will process that alone and, pu- and private, but they're, they're marching through. They're doing it. They're not ignoring the pain. They're seeing it, but they're waiting. And then there's this other one, and it's, it's really hard to describe. I just call it a darkness. There, sometimes I look in someone's eyes, and there, there is a darkness. Of, it's as if they feel abandoned by God in that moment. It's if they can't make any sense out of this at all, and it takes them to a really dark and low place that they're going to struggle for a long, long time to get out of. It is just, uh, it's haunting to see people that are in that kind of desolation. I was expecting that one. On our way back to see our friends, I was expecting that one, and what I found instead absolutely surprised me. I looked into our friend's eyes you know, it's all these years later, and it still gets me. And there was just this peace and openness, and they welcomed us in, and they and they weren't they weren't ignoring it. They were like, you know what? It's terrible. We have no idea why this happened, and we're not sure we'll ever understand why this happened. We don't know. We don't know if we'll ever figure it out. But we know that we can trust God. We know He's going to carry us through. We know that his plans and whatever he sees is beyond whatever we can see. And they, and they invited us in. They shared that with us. It was such a gift. And I thought, you know, we don't get through tragedy alone. We have to invite people in. God invites us to be in community with each other so that we can invite someone in who bears God's presence 
And if you've ever been in a tragedy and somebody who bears God's presence enters the room and you invite them in, it is a healing balm. The enemy wants to take you off task. He wants to knock you over with pain. But when we let people in, not to let them exploit it and, and do all of that, but when we let people in who bear God's presence, we send the enemy packing and we are comforted in those things. And it keeps us on track. We cannot let the enemy knock us off our game. We cannot let him cut us off with tragedy. The second thing I see the enemy using with some of us is he can sometimes get to us through comparison and disappointment. Comparison and disappointment. You know, um, maybe you did all the right things. You earned the right amount of money. You kept a good job. You married a person. You've managed your relationships well. You've managed your education well. You thought you would be further along in life than you are right now, and life is not going the way you expected. It is not going the way you predicted, and that's troubling. And maybe you can deal with it if everybody else's lives would just slow down a bit too. But when their lives are moving faster, when they're getting ahead of you, when we have that comparison game going on, it can be a struggle. When you see that other person getting a spouse when all you want is just to have a relationship, that's troubling. You see somebody else having children and all you want to do is build a family with children. You, you struggle with those things. You know, I was in uh, the Chick-fil-A the other day. I have no idea why I was there alone, but I was, and I had time, and I knew better But because it, it was a double-line wrap. You know what I'm talking about? At least our local Chick-fil-A, a double-line wrap. But, you know, I'm like, you know what? I've got time. I can do this. I got in the line. And I had made it all the way around one lap, and now I'm up by the window, right? And I'm in the outside lane, and they're here. And you have to stop, right? Because you can't block this lane of people who are getting their food. And then my next move is going to be to be right here. And you know what happened, right? I'm right here. Here comes this little blue car with a license plate from Ohio and cut me off cut in on me, cut me off, and got in front of me. And I'm like, dude, I, I was next. What, what are you doing? I, I was next. I've waited a whole round. You got another round for you, dude. friend. You know what I mean? I'm like, what? Here's the problem. I can't get away from this dude. Now I'm looking at his license plate for a whole nother round. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now I have to watch him progressing. He has lapped me. I'm okay. I am okay taking my time if everybody else is taking their time and nobody's cutting in line. But when somebody cuts in line and somebody laps me, now I'm struggling. And you know what I'm not thinking about anymore? I'm not thinking about my, you know, my coffee you know, frosted coffee that I was going to get, now all I can think about is his ding-dong license plate in front of me. Do you know what I mean? Now it, it interrupts my enjoyment of what I was planning to get because I've gotten so caught up in what's happening with, with this person in front of me. I've been consumed with the fact that somebody has getting, gotten ahead of me. The injustice of it, right? When things feel unfair in our life, when, when they feel unfair, I'm tempted to make them fair. You know what I mean? I'm going to bump that guy. You know, whatever. You feel like you're going to make it fair. You want to cut corners to get where you want to go. You want to give up on God entirely, maybe, when things aren't going well. We have to remember that we are running the race that God gave us. I'm not running blue car Ohio plate race. I'm running my race. 
He gets to answer to Jesus someday for cutting me off. I'll let Jesus handle that. I have to run my race. That's my race. And I cannot get consumed with comparison and the disappointments of watching other people get the things that I've been running for. We have to run our own race well. The next one. And this is kind of two items that are the opposite sides of what I think are the same coin. One of them is boredom. I think the enemy will cut in on us with boredom. I think he wants to slow us down in our race with God. I think he wants to slow us down or, or pull us off course by boring us. You know, do you remember when you first found Jesus and you were so excited about your faith? And, you know, and then you've been a believer for a while. You know, I mean, the people who first find Jesus, they are exuberant about it. Or people who first find a church that they love and they haven't been in a church they love this much and they're so excited and they bring all their friends. And after a while, you're like, oh, we keep singing the same songs. Can we do something different? Can we take offering different? Can we do, you know, I don't know. Can we? One guy, when we first planted the church, I'll never forget this. He said, you know how I think we could get people to come? What if we gave away a $100 bill at the beginning of every service? I was like, are you for real? He goes, yeah, that'd be great. I'd come. I'm like, I don't, I don't think we're going to do that. Thanks, but no thanks. We're not going to do that. I mean, if that's what it takes. We're not trying to entice you in here with that. I mean, what a crazy idea. What, whatever. One definition of jaded means this. Tired. Bored. Losing enthusiasm, typically after having too much of something. After having too much of something, now it's just a little too bored. Folks, church is not Disneyland. We're not trying to be Disneyland, okay? We definitely want you to connect. We definitely want to get your attention. But we are not here to spoon feed your senses to keep you engaged. That is Disneyland. That's not what God came to do right? We, we, we are not here just to create boredom, but the enemy will say, well, if it's not exciting enough, then I'm just not having it. Do you know how boring the church was that I grew up in and learned to love Jesus in? It wasn't half as exciting as this. You can learn to love Jesus in a lot of places without bells and whistles and lights. The other thing that the enemy comes to us in, and I think it's the other side of boredom, is overcommitment. We're so busy. We're so busy doing a whole lot of things. See, when you're bored, you become a consumer, because I'm just coming and putting in my time and I'm walking away. Sometimes when we're overcommitted, we become a consumer because we don't have time to, to really help at the church. We don't have time to do anything. And you know how easy it is to be critical of something that you're not vested in? You know, it's easy to come out here and criticize the coffee. Wow, so kind of weak today. I don't know. It was a little stronger last week. You know, you know who isn't complaining about coffee? People who make it. The people who know what it takes to make it, the people who know what it takes to get here early and stand in the back and do all that stuff and the thing that we call a kitchen but isn't really a kitchen, you know, those people, those people know that. When you have a little skin in the game, you're a little less critical, aren't you, of, of all the stuff that's going on. Get some skin in the game. Get some skin in whatever that game is where God is putting you. We are such a consumer society. We just bounce around from church to church to church. Now, if you're here looking and, and, and just seeing if this is where God's calling you today, I'm not fussing at you. I think it's appropriate. We have to figure out where God wants us to plug in. But, you know, after a year of that, it's time. You know what I mean? It's time to plug into a, to a church. Because the enemy wants us out of balance. He wants us out of balance by, with us being too bored or too overcommitted. And then we're just like a really bad tire on a car that's not balanced. Don't you hate that? And it's just got a shimmy to the whole thing when you're going down the road too fast. Or in my, you know, for me, the example is a washing machine that's out of balance. 
that walks out into the middle of the floor. You know what I'm talking about? I don't have a front loader. I have an old-fashioned one, and when the towels are on one side and the thing's moving, that's, that's out of balance. I'm not running a good race that way. I'm not even getting laundry done that way. The next one, fakes. The enemy wants to jade us by the fake people that we see attending church. The enemy wants to jade us, to, to discourage us, to make us cynical by the fake people we see leading churches. Do you know there's an entire Instagram, entire, there is an Instagram account out there that someone here alerted me to called Preachers and Sneakers? Nobody snickered. You don't know what it is. You can look it up later. It's, it, all it is is this. Somebody who has taken pictures of uh, celebrity pastors wearing high-dollar sneakers and then posted a picture right next to it of the, of the sneaker and the price tag of the, you know, the $1,000 or whatever it is. Yeah, that's all they're doing. They're just putting that up there for your uh, viewing, right? What are we doing? We're saying, oh, I'm jaded, right? What a fake. You know, it's too extravagant. Look at that person. They're in that for the wrong motive. I didn't even know there was $1,000 sneakers, but whatever. You know, I'm not defending that. I'm just saying that extravagance in leaders, extravagance in even our neighbors can sometimes throw us off the game. Do you know that when... Um, uh, Mary, the woman who poured perfume on Jesus' feet that was worth a year's wages. Do you know that right after that happened, one of the disciples had something to say about it? His name was Judas. And Judas said, Lord, that could have been sold for a year's wages, and that money could have been given to the poor. He is, he is having trouble with the generosity, the extravagance of this woman's generosity. And he is annoyed by the fact that Jesus is like, leave her alone. What she does is going to be talked about for generations. She is preparing me for burial. He didn't get that. But I'll tell you what, the very next thing he does is he walks out of the room and he goes to the chief priest and he makes a deal for Jesus to betray him. I believe Judas is jaded by that extravagant generosity. We can't let extravagance get in the way. But here's the opposite of this. You also can't let austerity be the thing either. I don't have a good word for that, but frugality, somebody who's thrifty, somebody who thinks being plain, that's the way to win God's favor. That can throw you off your game too and be just as fake. I grew up in a tradition, a very plain tradition, um, where plainness, there, where our people took great pride in being plain and not having anything extravagant. There were all kinds of rules about what you were allowed to wear, what you were not allowed to wear. Can I tell you that there were people there who were faking too? There are people who are living extravagant lifestyles who might be faking it and making you feel bad about all Christians. There can be people who look like they've got it all together and look super humble and they're just as fake. We can't, we can't let the devil lure us in to using appearances to throw us off our game and for us to get concerned about that because we're trying to discover who is really authentic. We should discern authenticity. We should. But don't let it rest merely on appearances. Betrayal. Another way the enemy wants to get at us and cut in on us is through betrayal. Somebody, and this is a little bit like an extended version of being fake. If you are fake, you are, um, you are purposefully not genuine, right? If you're, if you're presenting something in a deceptive manner, you're doing that on purpose and you are ingenuine. If you are a betrayal, it is usually somebody who promised something, but then they failed to, to keep it up 
right? They failed to be genuine over time. Maybe they intended to be and they didn't manage it. We see pastor and leader failure. We see spouses who uh, fail on their promises. We have friends who fail on their promises. Betrayal is broken promises and a breach of trust. And when somebody has broken our trust, it can make us cynical. It can make us jaded. Because there are two things are involved. When somebody breaks a promise with us, that is a trust that we put in someone that is broken. They let us down. But the other problem is, now we've lost the ability to trust ourselves. Right? Not only am I upset because you broke a promise, I'm upset with myself because I fell for it. I believed you. I stayed with you all this time, and now you've done this to me. And those kind of things can jade us, and the enemy will use that. Can I tell you if that's where you are? Can I tell you that if you're struggling with the betrayal of a good friend, of a leader that you have admired, of a spouse, there is one way forward, one path forward. It is forgiveness. And that's a really big F word. Forgiveness. It really is. And it is tough. It is tough. It doesn't come easily. It does not come instantaneously. We have to act in a forgiving manner until our forgiveness and our emotions catch up with us. This is how Jesus said it in Matthew. Matthew 6, 14 through 15. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. How about that? Our own forgiveness that we receive from God is dependent upon our forgiveness that we offer other people. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Finally, tradition. Tradition. You know, this is a weird one. I think that sometimes the enemy comes at us and slows down our traction and our race with the way that we have learned to express our faith in a given culture. Whatever that way is, very, very quickly becomes a tradition. Whether it's a church system, the atmosphere, the way we do the music, whether you like stages and lights, whether you like pews and piano. All of those things come in conflict with one another as we begin to feel a little snobby about whatever it is we like and what everybody else is doing. Can I tell you that no matter what method you use to get the gospel out, it can become a rut. Everything can become a rut. I grew up with pews. That I graduated to a church that had pews and a piano. After that, I went to a church, not this one, where we had stage and lights. And in every case, I remember people going, oh, this is the best. Now I can really worship because the lights are down and I can focus on the people in front of me and nobody's sleeping in the pew next to me and now I can really focus. And I remember saying to that person, and it was a decade ago, I said, give us 10 years and this will be a rut. Give us 10 years of this, and somebody will say, oh, there's got to be a better way. Those people are all faking up there. They're jumping around. They're not sincere. The way to be sincere is turn the lights up and pull a book out and be quiet. Now we'll know who's sincere. It doesn't, see, the method doesn't matter. The method does not matter. What matters is that, that we're going to get the gospel out, and we're going to be true to that. See, we have this thing going on in society right now that's called a deconstructing evangelical. If you've never heard of this, it tends to be church people, church kids, usually a little younger than me, so I don't know what that is, if that's Gen X, whatever they are. They tend to be people who were raised in church, and now they've gotten jaded. 
And they're like, oh, church was too rigid. They made me go to church all the time. They made me go to youth group. There was this purity culture that I didn't really enjoy. Um, I don't really like the way that they're closed-minded about this or that or the other thing. And, and so they're concerned about it. So they leave the church and they leave God. Listen to this quote from a pastor that I really um, respect. I've recently been meeting with more young adults who are leaving evangelical churches and who believe that their only option is to deconstruct Christian faith in its entirety. Many of them have been raised in strict homes, went to Christian schools, attended churches where questions were unwelcome, and disagreement with the prevailing opinion was perceived as heresy or rebellion. Or at least they perceived that was their experience. I constantly want to say to those leaving the church and the faith that there really is a Christian orthodoxy that will enable you to breathe. There is an orthodoxy which holds up to the historical Christian faith and traditional Christian morality, but which also seeks to experience the Holy Spirit, values the best of the contemplative tradition in Christian history, embraces women's rights, racial justice, and contemporary science. There is a biblical Christian faith which has not been co-opted by either of America's two political parties. There are lots of churches that are thoroughly orthodox in their Christian convictions and yet are relevant to 21st century culture. And you do not have to deconstruct to leave fundamentalism behind. I have spent my life and ministry trying to build this kind of church. Rich Nathan, Vineyard Columbus. I know this man and I respect him and he is absolutely right. If we are leaving the church over something that we think has become a rut or those sincere people did it too wrong or too strictly, then we're allowing the enemy to cut in on us and throw us off our game. And now we've left the race entirely. Church kids, listen to me for a minute. It is natural to question your parents' faith. It is natural for you to want answers about why we do things the way we do them. And you should get good answers for that, right? No one is asking you to blindly believe what your grandma believed before you. God is not honored by that. He wants you to own your faith for yourself. You need to own that for yourself. If it means having questions, then have those questions and work those things out with someone who can lead you in the way and show you who God is. We all seek fresh ways to encounter God. Martin Luther bucked up against Catholicism. Congregational singing bucked up against choirs. Praise and worship music bucked up against hymnals. I'm telling you, whether pews and pianos have bucked up against stage and lights, the method doesn't matter. The method doesn't matter. What does matter is we're not watering down the gospel. We will not redefine sin to fit modern sensibilities, but like good missionaries, we're going to constantly look for the language of the people that we want to reach so that we can reach them. We can't get hung up on the method. That's a tool of the enemy. So what does it take to knock you off your horse? use a different analogy, to cut in on your race. What has sapped your enthusiasm for Jesus? Do you need a shot in the arm? If you're fighting fatigue this morning, discouragement, the blahs in your relationship with God, if you're fighting cynicism or even the pull of extra commitment, can I say that you're looking at the wrong things? We are looking at the wrong things. We are letting circumstances and people sour us on God. We are letting our commitments put distance between us and God. Listen to Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders 
and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. Very quickly, number one, we have got to fix our eyes on Jesus. That's where our eyes have to go. We don't come to church for what it gives us. We don't come to church for who will sit with us. We don't serve Jesus when it suits us. We come to offer him our best. We come on the first day of the week to remember who he is, taking time to offer our voices in worship, our gifts in worship, and our attention in worship. And we cannot let the voices around us and the opportunities draw us off course. Number two, Jesus came for the jaded He came for those who were discouraged, had given up, had grown weary. People who think my marriage doesn't work, purity doesn't work, church doesn't work. God didn't come to make your life work. He came to help you live it for him, in relationship with him. He came to save us from our sin. So guess who sought Jesus out? The intellectually jaded? That's Nicodemus. Nicodemus shows up in John chapter 3 in the dark of night to talk with Jesus about important things. The socially jaded, the Samaritan woman who meets him at the well, and Jesus calls her out for her lifestyle. You're living with somebody you're not married to, girlfriend. She's like, you're right. The socially jaded, the medically jaded, all of the sick and the paralyzed and the lame who came to Jesus, who had extended their resources, exhausted their resources trying to get help. They are at the end of their medical rope. Jesus came for them. Jesus came for people who were jaded by the course of time, patience jaded. They've been waiting for a baby. Elizabeth has John the Baptist. He came for those people. The people who'd been waiting for a Messiah, he came for those, all of the disciples. If you're at the end of your rope and you're tired of everything and everyone, when you've dropped away and drifted from him out of disappointment or doubt or sheer busyness, he is the answer. The only answer is to get in his presence. Number three, seek out his presence. Seek out his presence. See, we've got to do what it takes to spend some private time with God alone. It's great to come on Sunday morning. It is great to experience corporate worship. I think it is absolutely, uh, it is foundational to what we're doing as a church and how God has invited us to interact with one another. But that's never good enough. Right? The new leader of the vineyard's name is Jay Pathak. He, Pathak. he will be installed as the leader of the vineyard churches in the United States um, this October and start his, his tenure in January. And one of the, the conditions he had for taking that position was he could not let go of his rhythm, his spiritual rhythm, of taking one day a week by himself. One day. He goes off by himself. I think he goes to a cabin. He lives in Colorado. Maybe we don't have a cabin. Maybe that feels outside of what you're able to do. But what can we do? How can we get alone with God? I'll tell you this. It takes some practical uh, stuff. For me, it involves tagging it to something I'm going to do anyway. I'm going to drink a cup of coffee in the morning. I guarantee it. So I'm going to tag my time with Jesus with my cup of coffee. One goes with the other, and I can't stand to do, not have both at the same time. I've spent an awful lot of time on my front porch, which is where I can get away. Actually, in the dark of night, writing for the, the new fall semester, that's where I can meet Jesus sometimes best, out on my porch. I don't know where you can go. Tie it to something you already do. Eliminate the noise and distractions around you, even when you're driving. 
Read God's word. Write something down. Copy the verse. Write down some way that it spoke to you. Pray. Maybe you write down your prayer and spend time listening to God, but we got to get back in the race. Folks, school's getting ready to start. Maybe you don't feel affected by that because you don't have, you know, kids going to school or you're not going to college or you don't teach. But y'all know our traffic patterns change when school starts, doesn't it? Our lives are changed. The traffic at Walmart, the traffic at Meyer, everything changes. This is a time for us to set new rhythms, to think about how we can stay in the race and we can uh, push away the enemy who is attempting to cut in on us. These people up here are our, our prayer team for this service. And what's going to happen is we're going to come to our feet in a moment. And, um, and as we sing our last song, any of you who would like prayer this morning, come up and somebody will pray over you. You can tell them as little or as much as you want. It can be about what the sermon was about or something else. It doesn't really matter. But before we do that, would you join me in prayer? God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this opportunity to get together. God, I thank you for a fresh season, a fresh academic season, which can sometimes just be a reset. And God, some of us need to be reinvigorated into our walk with you and to recognize the subtle ways that the enemy has been cutting in on us. Sometimes it's obvious, like the Chick-fil-A line. Other times it's subtle. And we got busy or we got bored we just haven't been paying attention. So God, I pray that you would come and speak to our hearts deeply about the changes that you want to make in them. In Jesus' name.